Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Calling All Communicators, a podcast where industry professionals and academics discuss all things communication. I'm Zach. And I'm Cindy. And today we talk with Mike Garner, who is a copywriter in uh, England. Um, and Mike is also the author of a recently released book called Stories That Matter, The Everyday Stories of Extraordinary Business People. And this is a really fun conversation um, because we didn't talk with Mike just about communication. We talked about a lot of life issues mm -hmm. and it was a lot of fun. I agree. Um, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, make any kind of like claims about what, what episode I've enjoyed the best or, or the most or anything like that. But this one I really did enjoy because it was just slightly different than the past ones we've had, right? This one, we talked a lot more about just like what it's like being human, you know? And I think a lot of this stuff was pretty helpful for, for me to hear and talk through with some other people too, because I'm a pretty big perfectionist in most aspects of my life. I think you can probably agree with me on that. You and, are. And I think that it's sometimes just good to kind of hear somebody else's perspective about, you know, like what really are the important things we need to be thinking about, you know, like trying is more important than anything. Right. And that yeah. was kind of the biggest thing I got from this conversation. Yeah. Um, and it's funny you talk about being a perfectionist because being your mother, I know that you're a perfectionist and um, the apple didn't fall too far from the tree on that no, one. Um, no, not really. <laughs> and so we talked with Mike about imposter syndrome and um, how most of us go through that at some point. And I think when you're going through it, you don't think anybody else ever goes through it. Um, but it's a very human thing. And it's very, can be very difficult too for a recovering perfectionist to, yeah. get, to get over that. And yeah. Mike had some good words with that. Good, good thoughts. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I'm just, gosh, there's so many things that, that I could say right now. Um, you know, one thing that I really struggle with is, you know, if something's good enough for me, you know, like, is this going to be good enough for me? You know, like, is it, you know, maybe it's not um, going to be good enough for other people, or maybe it's good enough for other people, but it's not good enough for me, you know? Right. And I, I kind of struggle with that in a lot of aspects. Um, but Mike kind of just made it clear. And, you know, we talked about writing quite a bit, obviously. And, and we talked about most of this, how to be human stuff through the context of writing, I would say too. And he told us, you know, like when you're writing, just the most important part is just get started, you know, <laughs> which, um, I know is so cliche, but it really is true, right? It really is getting those, getting that first draft down and realizing it doesn't have to be perfect. And I said this in the podcast when we were talking with Mike, and I'm still struggling with that. I want my first draft to be perfect. And it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've gotten quite a bit better with this stuff. Um, just because like being in graduate school, you kind of have to, um, you kind of have to learn like really quickly how to take constructive criticism, you know, because I mean, when you're writing papers, it doesn't matter how good that paper is. People are always going to have feedback for you on it. Right. Or say, yeah. You need to work on this. You need to work on that. 
And I learned that very quickly in graduate school that I was like, you know, I need to develop a thick skin for this. Like I'm going to get more feedback on my writing than I did in my undergrad. They're going to be way more critical of it. Like I just need to roll the punches, you know? Right. And And everybody has to learn that no matter what profession you're in, uh that your work is not going to be perfect. Other people are going to have suggestions and that's something that it took me a while to get over too. Um, but now I, if, if a client doesn't offer suggestions to me, I'm like, well, why not? I mean, yeah, seriously, <laughs> I'm, I'm exactly. ready for it. <laughs> yeah. If somebody, yeah. If I like show my paper or anything to someone else, to one of my peers in my class and they say like, yeah, everything looks good. I'm going to be second guessing myself like, oh man, like, yeah, but what are they seeing? You know, like what's going on here? Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. But yeah, I, I like that part of our conversation with Mike and Mike has had a very diverse background mm-hmm. and I love, you know, he lived in France for a long time and did a lot of translation work uh, between French and English. And um, so his diverse background, I think is very interesting as well. So I think, um, this is a very interesting episode. I agree. I, I can't wait for our listeners to hear more about it. Um, so without further ado, let's go ahead and get into our episode with Mike Garner. Well, welcome Mark. to podcast Mike Gardner. Mike is a copywriter and storyteller. He helps ambitious business owners become one of a kind, turning their backstory into their brand story. The story is the one thing that truly sets them apart. He's been a freelancer for almost 27 years, and he lived in France for half of his adult life. He moved back to the UK 20 years ago for the other half. Mike published a book called Stories That Matter, The Everyday Stories of Extraordinary Business Owners in the Spring. And that book, by the way, is on my nightstand. <laughs> so, welcome, Mike. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, Mike, we generally start our podcast asking people, how did you get your calling for communication? In a very roundabout way. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm I'm one of those copywriters that didn't write as a kid, um, felt no compulsion to write journals or anything like that. Um, regrettably now, but hey. Um, and and but I wrote I read a lot. Um, right from, I can remember reading King Arthur Tales when I was six or seven, and it kind of went on from there. And, but but writing was something that other people did. I, I don't know why, it never occurred to me to write um, until I was a student in my kind of late teens, early 20s, and I fell in love with history, and, and I went down a, a, a different path, if you like, because I wanted to be a history teacher, um, I, I had an, old, an entire career in academia set out for myself in my head, and for a number of reasons, it didn't happen. Um, and I went off at a sulk and ended up in France. Um, but that kind of got me something of a writing bug. But I still didn't write. I couldn't write. I, I think it was self-belief. It was I couldn't get beyond the first page. I can remember trying to write sh- short stories in my in my 20s in French mm. get that for some reason mm. and I'm sure that was some kind of procrastination some kind of resistance not writing it mm. in English not writing it in my mother tongue 
Um, and, and even kind of later on, I became a translator and it was almost like I was writing by proxy because I was writing somebody else's words. Mm-hmm. Um, I still desperately wanted to be one, but it was torture writing, absolute torture. I mean, even writing for other people, let alone writing for myself. Then writing for other people became easier, but writing for myself was was really difficult. And it's only really, I mean, I'm 64 now, it's only really in the last three years that it suddenly clicked, <laughs> properly clicked. I became a decent writer as a translator because I, I, I was a translator right at the beginning of being a freelancer. Then between five and ten years ago, I morphed into being a copywriter because I got sick of translating other people's bad French. But I I became a good writer. I think once I moved back here and once I was surrounded by my, my mother tongue, I kind of got used to it. The confidence grew, if you like. Then, just to kind of go very briefly over the last three years, in 2020, my, um, apart from other events that may have happened in 2020, um we put my mother in a home um she had alzheimer's um and was basically a danger to herself at home um and then a week later literally a week later my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer um she's fine now but it was you know the beginning of 2020 started off with a bang various other things happened basically to my mother um during the first half of that year and um she didn't make it well she died on the 21st of june which was the day after my wife's 60th birthday. So that's the realisation. That's the turning point, because it gets better from here. The the, um, What's the word? Um, I I remember sitting down doing the probate thinking, wow, what just happened? You know, now is the time. I'm the wrong side of 60. Now is the time to sort your life out. To, to start doing the things you've always wanted to do, but you were too scared to do. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my my benchmark, if you like, was that, uh, like I say, my mother died three years ago now. Um, she was 26 when I was born. So I've now got 23 years before I beat her. And that's But that's mm-hmm. my, my yardstick, if you like. Mm. I intend going on into my 90s. If it's good enough for Mel Brooks, who was 97. <laughs> Um, why would I retire Um, and I just kind of started I started I started working with a with a I worked with um, Margot Aaron who's a copywriter who works with um, Seth Godin uh, on my writing voice and she got me writing I wrote 20,000 words in three weeks wow Um, and it just started going whoosh and the most important thing she said to me was, just because you write something down doesn't mean to say you have to publish it. Mm. And it was that was permission for me, for the perfectionist in me to say, mm-hmm. okay, just get it out there and you can edit it afterwards. Yeah. Um and I and I told some of my darkest secrets, um, the things that I was ashamed of. Um and some of them are still on my hard disk and will stay there forever. Some of them, you get them out. And in fact, it's not so bad. Mm. And there's a couple of things are actually in the book that I've never talked to anybody about before. Wow. Um, and that was the revelation. I did the old MBA afterwards, and 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 I've just become an evangelist for for saying you have a story to tell. 
you know, I, I could actually start writing and I'm doing the same. I'm on the same process with video now because I've always been uncomfortable with video, but I've just started a YouTube channel yeah. and accepting. But, um, but I think that the, the essential thing to do with any kind of communication is accepting um, that it won't be perfect first time. <laughs> yep. I still struggle with that. Big time. Me yeah. too. Yeah. But, it, but you know, it's I, I came across um, a little clip. We need to have a better relationship with getting things wrong. Hmm? Because we kind of fetishize failure uh, in a way. You know, you, you, if you don't win, you're a loser. Mm-hmm. That's not how life works. No. For every success, there's and we need all these overnight successes that have been 10 years in the making. You know? Or yeah. more. <laughs> or yeah. more, yeah. Or more. Yeah. Um so it's it's I mean, yeah, it's difficult sometimes because because repeated failure or perceived let's let's not use the word failure, but re- repeated not getting things right, not being successful, is draining sometimes. Yes. But you know, you have to have to push through. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Mom. I was just no. Go ahead. One thing, <laughs> uh, I just want to say one quick thing. There was a lot of great things you said there, but one thing, and you said it pretty early on, um, mm-hmm. is how when you first started writing, you first started writing in French and not in English, right? And that yeah. just stuck out immediately. And uh, this is uh, I just kind of want to talk about this a little bit. It's just that you know, it almost kind of gave you permission to fail, right? Because it, it in you a way, you know. in a way, you might be able to process it if you're like, you know what, this writing isn't very good. But you know what, it's in French, it's not my first language. Like it gives me permission to not be as good that way. Right? I, I, I've never when I first heard it. That was kind of the way that I was thinking about it, right? I, I never thought of it that way. But you're right. Um, I, I did actually finish a short story once in French. When I was living here, when I was living in the UK, that's strange, strange enough. Mm-hmm. But there's another side to that as well. I mean, I've been, I don't really want to go down this rabbit hole too much, but I've been in and out of therapy for, for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first ones that I, the first ones I did, I was still living in France. So it was, I did it all in French, obviously. And I always thought I was playing a game because I wasn't doing it in the, the language or the tongue that. I mean, I, I can speak. Yeah. I can. I can pass for French. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, it, but it's still not what I would call my mother tongue. Yes, you know, it's, I don't have that visceral connection to it mm-hmm. that you that you would with with the thing that that is. I mean, French is part of me as well, but but almost like English is more part of me. I have a I, as good as my French is. I have a better feeling. I have a. I have a feelings that I. I instincts that i can't explain in english i know when things mm-hmm. are right and I know things when things are wrong i can't even explain to you yep. don't ask me to describe the subjunctive because i can't mm-hmm. you know yeah <laughs> but, I, feel French, but I can't do it in english <laughs> yeah and man yeah that's that is so fascinating um and doing doing therapy in a different language yeah that must be really interesting because you know in therapy a lot of the times you're trying to come up with 
you know, a lot of times you're not even going to have the words necessarily for what you're trying to talk about, right? So doing it in a second language then must make that even harder, you know, from a communication standpoint. What makes it even another level of complications, one of the therapists I had was a psychotherapist, a Lacanian psychotherapist. But, you know, um, Lacan is, is, you know, very much on the words that you choose to use. Wow. And... She was probably right in picking me up because my level of French was was good enough to know the difference. Yeah. Know? But that was my get out clause. That was my resistance clause, my mm. why, my whatever you want to call it. Um, my way of avoiding the big questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, it's not my language. Mm, it is really. <laughs> so. You know, you mentioned that it wasn't until three years ago that you felt like you would become a good writer. Yes. And, um, you know, and I, I, that coincided, but with all these major events in your life. Yeah. Oh, completely. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I don't know what you think about this. I think a lot of that comes with age and experience comes the wisdom where you just say, yeah. I don't give a shit anymore. I'm going to put out what I think and we're going to go with it. I I, th- I think you're right, but there's this, there needs to be, it's not necessarily just age. I think there needs to be trigger events mm-hmm. like, like me becoming, because I suddenly realized after my mother died that because I'm the eldest brother, I'm, I'm at the top of the genealogical tree now. There's nobody else. Mm. I've got no parents to refer to. Yeah. Um, and again, that's a rabbit hole we could go down, but probably won't because, you know, it's, I've got no one to tell me off, basically. Yeah. I've got no one to approve or disapprove. Um, I've got this me and my brother who is, so I will say my little brother, he's 61. Um, but I mean, no. <laughs> we have two children between us and that's our direct line and that's it. I mean, I've got yeah. stepchildren and, and step-grandchildren uh, and things. But this is where the line starts. A step stops rather and it's really interesting how the effect when when i think the more i think about it now the the effect that that had on me or has had on me i mean also people i respect people like margot aron telling me i was a really good writer you know it's going to people like kira hug people like ash ambache that obviously the external validation is great I, I think what I've started to get, and this is only really just in the last year, again, psychobabble rabbit hole, is the internal is the internal validation of me actually in internalizing it and believing it, rather than going and because it's it's a natural human reaction to want to go and seek the approval of others, right? Um, but real stability comes from self acceptance. Absolutely, I mean. I don't know about you, but when somebody tells me I'm a good writer, I'll think they're not right. <laughs> you, yeah, know? Really. you have to, you know, it's like yeah, I start you, doubting I it. used to think that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm thinking, okay, these people know what they're talking about. Right. You know? Uh, yeah. uh, and and one thing that gave me a, it gave me a real big kick was that I, I, because obviously I did, Margot working with Seth Godin, me doing, the Ultra MBA and all Seth Godin's other courses in twenty in twenty twenty one. When I finished the book, I emailed him just to say, 
basically it's your fault I've done this. Yeah. <laughs> then, um, I blame Margot Aron or something because I thought that would get his attention. Mm-hmm. He only went and bought the book. That's and pretty cool. When you, when you get someone like that who buys, it, yeah, it's completely external validation. Mm-hmm. But I think that I think that one's valid. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so too. And you know, that's something that I struggle with a lot in my life is being able to. I don't know if this is the right word for it, but almost be able to convert that external validation into internal validation. You know, because kind of like you mentioned. Yeah. Um, you know, if somebody tells me that I did something well, my mind first goes to, because I'm my own own worst critic, is, you know, my mind goes to, well, no, they don't know this part of it, or they don't know this part of the context, or, you know, yeah, those things, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I think that's a natural human reaction, though, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's, we sure. all do that. We all do that. And and perhaps also the, the realisation that we're kind of all the same. <laughs> yeah. We're just as bad as each other. <sighs> Um, we're just some of us are better hiding it than others, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. And that leads me to what you're doing now when you're talking about working with people to draw their stories out. Yeah. So they can develop their own personal brand voice and come across as true authentic people. Yeah, that's that is basically it's 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 a work in progress at the moment, I must admit. But it's <laughs> it's like anything. It's it's working on their timeline basically i'll take particularly with i mean it's a bit more complicated when you've got teams but when i'm working with an individual business owner i say right you've got x number of years of your life you've done all kinds of things we we tend to identify business owners and particularly freelancers tend to identify themselves with what they're doing now or what they've done in the last two or three years but I, I know I have got a whole load of experience that has brought me to what I do now. And I've just even just now thought of another one. Mm. Um, I'm a copywriter now. I've been a translator. Um, I was a travel agent and I've got a degree in history. Plus a few other things. <laughs> that degree in history means that I can tell the difference between what's important, what's not important. I can interpret things. I can notice trends. Um, and I've only just literally just now thought about, because I thought the travel agent thing didn't, didn't matter in this in my particular journey, but it does, because I was working with customers all the time mm-hmm. and building relationships with customers. Mm-hmm. That is when I did my first networking. Yeah. Hmm. Actually, and this is in the 1980s, early, early 90, well, basically through the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so everything we do probably has a, um, a relevance to what we do now. There's always going to be transferable skills. So what I like to do, the first thing I like to do with clients, and sometimes they can get really detailed on it. I had a client, uh, a while ago, I gave her my questionnaire. She came back to me with 10,000 words. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And and it was slightly complicated but not that complicated and we worked something we worked out a brand message from that because um these stories are the only thing that we have that makes us unique mm-hmm. yeah i can i can sit myself in a room i mean i was in a room three weeks ago with 25 different copywriters 
In theory, we are all exactly the same, except we're not. We've all got completely different stories. We've all got, I mean, apart from the fact I was old enough to be most of their fathers. <laughs> um, but, but no, and I say that flippantly, but it's, 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 we've all got different stories. We've all got different things that we bring to the table. And that is the reason why a client will choose me or you or somebody else. It's, it's because, to use a particularly British expression, they like the, they like the cut of my jib. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, I, I was talking, literally, I was talking to a client yesterday. Um, and the reason why she bought from me was that she saw a video of me last week on LinkedIn saying, I could relate to you. Mm. I liked you. Um, and that wouldn't necessarily happen with somebody else selling exactly the same program. Well, isn't that what it comes down to when we're buying something like that is belief and trust. Mm -hmm. oh, and yeah. when you're sharing your personal story and you know how you got there and why that formed you, how that formed you to who you are now, that yeah. leads people to trust you. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Even the stories that don't relate to your business. Yep. Because that makes you a human being. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and you can say people buy from people till you're blue in the face. Um, but until you actually live that that thing, um, I mean there, there is this this thing, this stuff, this storytelling stuff does come with one big caveat. Um, is that the your audience is not your therapist. Mm -hmm. So I, I can talk about my struggles, and I do. I talk about my struggles with self-belief, um, imposter syndrome, and all that. Because I think to some – well, to, to, to a large extent, I'm over it. Mm. should never, A, share something you're not comfortable with sharing, and B, share a problem that's a work in progress that you haven't got over yet. Wow. Because no one wants to hear you in a crisis. Yes, yeah. I like that. It's, That's very it's, good wisdom. It's it's off putting, isn't it? I mean, you know, we've mm -hmm. we've seen it, particularly on Instagram. You've seen the meltdowns on Instagram. <laughs> yes, and you wonder why the followings kind of disappear. Um, because because we want people who trust me want to trust me because I'm a figure of authority. And if I start wailing about, I don't know. Um, I'm not going, I am working through one or two things at the moment. If I start waiting about those kind of things in public, they're going to think, who is this idiot? Right. I'm going to blow all the trust that I built up over many years, almost in, in seconds. Mm -hmm. I, I really like that point because um, I always kind of tell my students, um, I, I teach college classes and I always tell my students, I'm like, if the hardest thing to gain back in your life is your credibility. You know, yeah. that is the hardest thing, right? Like you can lose yeah. money, you can get money back. Credibility though, you know, once that's gone, boy, that is a really, really tough thing to get people's trust. And there are very few people that have done it. Mm -hmm. um, the only example that comes to me off the top of my head at the moment is Tiger Woods and even then. Yeah, even then, that's shaky. Not, yeah, that's, that's shaky. shaky. Yeah. He's got sporting credibility back. Yeah. Whereas the other credibility is something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I can't think of anybody else. It's tough. It's really hard. 
Yeah. yeah. It's it's ultimately your your trust and your people's belief in you is your that's like your one really big currency in life, you know, like more so than money. I would say mm. your credibility and people's belief in you is a bigger currency than money, yes. really. Yeah, completely. Um, but your story is the only thing you've got in building that credibility up. Um, so I mean <laughs> You could argue that your story is always managed, and it is. But if if you've got something to say, if I've got something to say that can benefit somebody, even if it's just one person, I'll be happy. I mean, just the reason one well, the reason why I wrote my book was that I wanted it started off as my story, and then it kind of branched out to other people, people I knew because I've been I've been doing face to face networking for fifteen years, so I knew I know a lot of business owners. And then it kind of walked we kind of grew into other copywriters and things. Um, but um I wrote it because A, I wanted to prove myself I could do it, but also I wanted to to tell people that you've got a story to tell as well. And then one of the beta readers actually did say that to me unprompted. Honestly, really, on really unprompted. Say that it made me want to tell my story because I didn't think I had one before. So if I've convinced one person to do that, then I've won. Yeah. Well, you know, I've worked with, I've worked mainly uh, with people in the financial world, writing copy for them and doing strategy for them. It can be difficult to get them to loosen up a little bit and share their own personal stories. And if I do, when I do get them to do that and I can show them the statistics of what this does for them. Mm. Sometimes a light bulb goes off, not always, um, (laughs) because they're still resistant to it. So what advice do you give to business owners who might be reluctant thinking it's not professional to share their own personal stories and um, things like that? It's 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 a really difficult question because I I, I get I, I was get again talking to a client backhander last week who is a copywriter mm-hmm. as well so gets this this kind of thing mm-hmm. um, but is terrified to to loosen up. I mean I suppose all, all I can do is point to the I mean financial services is is a particularly hard nut to crack, mm-hmm. um, not just because of the when I'm not casting any aspersions on the kind of people that are attracted to as financial services, but there are regulations in financial services as well. Exactly. Yeah. Like medical as well. That you can't just say anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but even so, um, I, I, I think one of the things I do is just point to the people that have loosened up a bit and see how they're cleaning up. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, our, in the copywriting world, just look at people like Laura Belgrave, mm-hmm. Ash Amberger. I mean, you know, then they're million dollar copywriters. Yeah. What, what, and, and the next thing is is well, how would you how would you be with him if you were in the same room? You know, would would, would you say kind regards? Like you insist on putting at the end of your email. Right. No one says that. Why would you put it in an email? <laughs> there there is, and and I've I've thought I can't remember who it is now because I've unsubscribed. Um, but there was there's a there's a newsletter which deals in something really serious is um, seed funding for 
you know, California seed funding, basically. So it's a really serious newsletter. Um, but the guy who writes it signs it kisses at the end. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah. You know, but it's it's just a little bit of personality. I mean, you can like yeah. it or not like it, but it's it's... <laughs> And he's got a massive following as well. I don't yeah. know if it's because the kisses or because of the information. It might be a mixture of the two. But but um, it's possible to do these kind of... I mean, there's the, the, the things like Morning Brew um, and the other daily newsletter, the news, the name of which I've forgotten now. Um, stuff like they, They've got a certain amount of personality. Mm-hmm. There's brands all over the world, you know, Ben and Jerry's was built on a personal, not personal brand, um, a kind of irreverent brand. Yeah, yeah. And taking, taking, obviously taking positions. I don't know if you know because it, well, it is in the US, but not very much. Innocent drinks here as well. No. Yeah, innocent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Follow them on on Instagram. Really, it's a smoothie brand, um, and that they have, they are. They're very particular. Why they're, they're kind of irrelevant? They're silly. They're, they are, but they are. They, they, they've the the business started about twenty five years ago in a, in the village fair south of London somewhere, and they were serving these these kids out of college, basically kids out of Cambridge, and they was they made these smoothies and they had they had two tubs um, with tokens saying right one do we start a business or the other one do we not start a business and obviously the business one. One, that is part of their their founding story, because mm-hmm. that's that's another thing as well, which is important. It's not just what you're doing now. It's it's how did you get where you come to now? And we all know the story, you know, the Ben and Jerry stuff, or the Hewlett Packard in the in their garage, and and the story mm-hmm. of Apple and things like that. But you don't need to be a mega company to have that story. Mm-hmm. But I'm developing mine now out of the last three years really um yeah. because because people relate to that and also you people self select right you turn people off as much as you turn them on right and, and that's fine and that's a very good thing yes yeah. yes yeah not everybody needs to like what you have to say you know <laughs> i mean yeah cuz not everybody's going to be your customer yeah. i mean do you like everybody in the world <laughs> no, that's, that's my logic. <laughs> like it really well, so why why would I expect them to like me? Right, as wonderful and as, as likable as I am, you know, I'm I'm not going to appeal to everybody. Yeah, you're not everybody's cup of tea, and no. If I always think if I'm not if if I'm not their cup of tea, then most likely they're not mine, and we're not going to work well together. Exactly, it's going to be frustrating. Yep, exactly. Yes, I, I, I've had I've been on more than one discovery call uh, over the years with clients or potential clients, and I've suddenly had a feeling says, "I don't like you," <laughs> <laughs> and I've done and I do my best to sabotage the call. It doesn't always work, uh, but, but but yeah, I think we have to work. We and that's another part of telling our story. It's we have to to work with people that align with our values, right? Um. You know the the, the 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 businesses with the strongest stories do have values, and you can like them or not like them. 
but they have them. <laughs> but at least they have them. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. We I go as personally, I go as far to say I wouldn't go anywhere near a business without any values. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you know when you're talking about that. Are you familiar with Pensy Pensky's spices? Rings a bell. Yeah, they are right up front about mm-hmm. their values and their their political beliefs. Yeah. And a lot of people would never go there, but they have the guts to do it. They have the guts and, to do it. Yeah. And they've, you know, obviously they they have 50% of the US population that will not buy from them if they know their story. Yeah. But the other 50% will buy from them. That's still 150 million people, so I mean, right. It's still a decent sized market. Yeah, granted the the interesting thing about having like the values that might now be possibly tied to some like, you know, political beliefs, especially in the United States and England, you know, it's different, obviously, yeah. but in the United States, it's a little different. And, um, you know, there are definitely some very big businesses in the U.S. that people are very, very clearly tied to uh, or like certain parties are pretty clearly tied to and stuff. And there's oh, a. Yeah. Yeah, and there are decent sized debates, you know, about, you know, if you're a Democrat and there and people know that you go there and you identify as a Democrat, but it's a Republican establishment, you know, people are some people are probably going to give you flack for that, you know, because they're like, you mm-hmm. know, that if you identify as a Democrat, you're not allowed to go there because those values don't align with yours if you say you're a Democrat. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's so almost going down a different path. It's, I mean, uh... it's, yeah, instead of personal values, you're talking wider values yeah exactly yeah it's more of like yeah. i mean you, you, yeah. do hear, um, you do hear people losing it on twitter um maybe because that's the twitter argument is horrible at the moment oh yeah. but losing it on twitter but just because such and such a company displayed a rainbow flag or something you know right and, you know uh, or, or or something like that and i don't think the companies in question are going to lose any sleep no of uh well, let's not go there, but I, I'll tell you off the microphone what I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, well, Mike, we're starting to get close to our uh, to our time here. Oh, yes, this mm. this has been a really great conversation. Um, normally, how we end these conversations is we um, we ask you if you just have kind of like one communication tip overall to give our listeners, what would that be? Obviously you've given us a lot of tips already, uh, but like, you know, like in your mind, what's kind of the most important thing for, you know, listeners keep in mind. If you don't know what to say, you can't think of what to say. Just write down the first thing that comes into your head. Literally, even if it's your shopping list, because it starts and write by hand as well. There's research to say that um, the the there's I forget exactly what it is, but it's the connection between the, the nerves in your thumb and the nerves in your head. It's it's a more visceral um, way of getting started. I mean, more than once, even recently, I've I've got to a stage where I don't know what to say, so I go and get my iPad out, I go and get a piece of paper out, and write it down. I guarantee within three sentences, it's it's done. I suppose that again, I'm going back to my most important piece of advice I was ever given. Just because you write something down doesn't mean to say you have to publish it. Yeah, it has to come out wrong before it comes out right. But I like but, that. But wrong is better than not at all. <laughs> yep. You can always improve. You can't edit what's in your head. Yeah, yeah, 
I love that. The biggest thing to me that like kind of what I just thought about there is like you can't hurt anybody by writing these words, you know, like these words yeah. aren't gonna jump off the page and hurt anybody, you know? No, like, there's nothing wrong with putting them down on the page. No, no. So it's but they, because you can edit it afterwards. It's it's the what do they say? Write angry, write angry, edit sober. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Write drunk or write, yeah, or I yeah. What, yeah, but, yeah, something like that. Yeah, write yeah. drunk, edit sober. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think it was Hemingway that was, might well have been Hemingway. I think so, it was Hemingway, yes. Yeah. Um, but also give yourself a night, if you can, to think about it and mull it over and edit it the next day. Don't edit it. Don't write it down and edit it straight away. Absolutely. Because it's it's got to settle in your mind. Yep. I can't tell you how many times I've written something and wait until the next day. And yeah. either I'm like, this needs a lot of improvement. Mm-hmm. Or oh, that was pretty good. No, no, <laughs> yeah, I, you have to come back at it with a clear mind. I I finished this book in I finished editing this book in February, I think, and I still go back and read it from time to time. And I think oh, I might have said I might have said that one a little bit, but differently or or something. But there are again equally, there's times when you've got to let it go. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, you know, because otherwise you'll never publish anything. Yeah, <laughs> are you going to publish a second book? I've got one in my brain. All I right. Probably, I probably won't start it until next year now because okay. too many other things to do. But I've I've certainly got one. Yeah, now I've done one. I can I know I know the system now. I know yep. how to do it. Yep. Beautiful. I look Once forward to seeing once. that journey. <laughs> yeah. Really looking forward to that. This is about people that speak different languages. Wonderful. Sounds mm-hmm. cool to me. Yeah. Look forward to it. All right, Mike, thank you so much for your thank time. You very much. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, this was great. Mike. Too, yeah, it's, it's, I was, I love talking about this stuff. I could talk about this. <laughs> day, so. It's great. We could listen to it all day. So that's right. <laughs> all right. Well, all right. we really appreciate it, Mike. Thanks. Thanks. A lot. Thank you. Cheers. Bye.